Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I ask for your help now as I attempt to speak out of your word. If you don't come and by your Holy Spirit empower what I say, it won't have any eternal effect. And that's the only kind I really care about. You said to us, Jesus, without me you can do nothing. And that's the way I feel as I begin now. Nothing of any significance will happen in this moment unless you come. And so I ask in the name of Jesus that you would come and that you would move from person to person and open the eyes of the blind so that they might see the infinite value of Jesus Christ and embrace him as the supreme treasure of their lives. In his name I pray, amen. My plan is to try to remove two obstacles from your embracing Christ and his understanding of the world. One this morning and one later this afternoon. I'll tell you right off the bat what the one is this morning and then later I'll tell you what the one is that I'll try to remove this afternoon because the obstacle that I want to remove later today is created by the way I removed the one this morning. The one this morning that I want to remove is one I I have felt in my own heart and and I've seen it uh, hinder uh, C.S. Lewis from coming to faith and then he got over the obstacle and then I've seen it hinder another man in London from coming to the faith and he he hasn't gotten over it. And it goes like this. One of the clear, obvious truths about the Christian faith is that God is majestic and glorious and powerful and wise and just and holy and good. And he made the world, he made you and everything else in order to put all of that majesty on display for you to praise and magnify. And that strikes a lot of people as a very unattractive case of megalomania. Let me read uh, a, a quote from the London Financial Times by this fellow that I mentioned. Michael Prouse is his name. And you'll hear what I mean by calling this an obstacle to faith. This is from the March 30th, 2003 London Times. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. 
Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? End quote. C.S. Lewis said that when he read the Psalms in his 20s, he was converted when he was 29, when he read the Psalms and their continual litany of praise God, praise God, magnify God, extol God, he knew the Christian doctrine that this book is inspired by God. So this is God saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. Praise me. And he said, it it sounded like an old woman needing compliments. (laughs) That's what he said. So you have C.S. Lewis, who eventually did get over the obstacle, and you have Michael Proust, to my knowledge. I wrote him a long letter when I read this to sum up this message, and I didn't ever hear back from him. I don't know whether he's gotten over the obstacle. For him, he's not even going toward Christianity because Christianity is ruled by a megalomaniac. And we don't like people that, I mean, if I stood in this pulpit and said, okay, the reason I came to Boston is to get your praise, so would please applaud a little bit, stand up and say nice things about me. Come on, talk about me. You, you, would, all, you would all say, this fellow's sick and he should go back to Minneapolis. <laughs> but if God stands here and says it, we're supposed to like it. So this is not a straw man. This is... People stumble over this. I was talking to Don Carson a few weeks ago, and as he does what he calls these university missions around the country, he said that the shifting of the gears in people's brains from 40 years ago to today and the kinds of questions that are often asked are ones like, how do you prove that Jesus is raised from the dead? That would be 40 years ago. And, and uh, why, how can you worship a megalomaniac? That would be a question today. So... Um, That's the obstacle I would like to help you over in these next few minutes. Let me uh, underline the fact that it's not a straw man in that it is really a biblical problem. It's in the Bible. It's not like these guys are making this up. A few passages. Just Isaiah 43, 7. God says to Israel, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I have created for my glory. What does that mean? I created you for my glory, God says. It doesn't mean I created you to make me more glorious than I was before. Like you're now a component. And without you... I'm defective. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm creating you to display my glory, to magnify my glory. And that word magnify is tricky. Because microscopes magnify and telescopes magnify. And they do something very different. Magnify with a microscope, you make a tiny little thing look bigger than it is. If you try to magnify God that way, you blaspheme. He's not little. 
You can't make God look bigger than He is. You try, you blaspheme. A telescope, on the other hand, is designed to make things that are enormous, but look little, look more like they are. That's the way you're supposed to magnify God. God created us to display His glory, to make it look more like it really is. You are in God's image with the gifts that you have for that reason. You're on the planet, believer or unbeliever, that's why you're on the planet. In order to put to people's eyes with the lens of your life a telescope that helps them see God for who He really is. Most people think He's little or totally insignificant. Now, that's, a, that's one text, Isaiah 43, 7. Almost all Christians have learned Romans 3.23. See if you can finish it. Uh, For all have sinned and... Good. Good. I thought maybe the first service was the Bible people and the second service. (laughs) Isn't that strange? That he would virtually define sin as falling short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Fall short. Not a very literal translation. Very literal translation would be lack. All of sin and lack. Well, what do you mean lack? Chapter 1, verse 23. That was Romans 3.23. Chapter 1, verse 23 says, we've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of images. So we lack it. You all lack it. You've all made that exchange. I make it every day. My emotions get more excited about a new program on my computer than about God. I am dishonoring God every single day of my life because my emotions do not rise to the level of approval and joy and delight and praise and admiration that he is worthy of. And so I'm falling short of magnifying his glory all the time, which means I am under his wrath, worthy of judgment, and so are you. And he, according to the Christian gospel in the Bible, sent Jesus Christ, his son, to fix that. And here's a text, and I'm just trying to make the problem as bad as I can. So here's the, here's, the, here's the text. This is Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, roughly. It says, Christ came as a servant of the circumcised, that means he became Jewish Messiah, in order to confirm the truthfulness of God and in order that the Gentiles, that's most of us, might glorify God for His mercy. So Jesus comes 
mercifully to lay his life down in our place so that all of this failure to glorify, honor, magnify God the way we should could be forgiven. A righteousness, a perfection could be provided by another, counted as mine, if I would trust him. And then you get this ruinous phrase at the end of verse 9, in order that we might glorify God for his mercy. So there you are back again with the self-centered God. Even his son is sent into the world to get praise for him. And that is absolutely right. So, wherever you turn in the Bible, C.S. Lewis was stumbling, Michael Prowse is stumbling, and they're stumbling over a real stone. We're not making it up. It's not a straw man that I've stuck up here that has some easy way to knock it over. God everywhere in the Bible does what He does for His own glory. We don't like people like that. Period. I don't. I don't like people like that. If I'm talking to you after this service and I get the impression you're trying to get me to say something nice about you or know a little more about your savvy or pick up on your intelligence, I don't like you. (laughs) And you don't like people like that either. And I'm telling you, that's the way God is. He is. If you were to talk to God after the service, His main agenda would be, praise me. Now, there's the obstacle. Okay? What is the answer that would cause anybody to want to really be with Him? (laughs) Spend a day, let alone eternity, with Him. Let me put it in my words, and then I'll put it in C.S. Lewis' words, and then I'll, I'll get it from the Bible so you can see the real authority behind it. Here's my, here's my answer. The reason God is not a megalomaniac in calling for all of his creatures to praise him is because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Meaning, if God's glory is shown to be what it really is through my enjoying Him, being satisfied in Him, then His pursuit of His glory is His pursuit of my joy. Which means that God is the one being in the universe for whom... Self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most magnificent act of love. That's my answer. Here's Lewis's answer. He uh, wrote a book on the Psalms where he was describing this stumbling block of his, and then he wrote this. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, only God, what we delight to do 
what we indeed cannot help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. He talks about wine, children, mountains, rare beetles, rare stamps. Want to see my stamp collection? Oh, look at the sunset. We, 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 we praise what we enjoy. That's where he's talking here. Not merely because it expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. When I read that back in the late 60s, it absolutely changed everything. Because what it means is this. If I am made to enjoy God, know Him, love Him, admire Him, sort of like you go to the Grand Canyon. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? It is not to increase their self-esteem. You feel small at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You feel vulnerable. Your knees wobble, especially if you walk out on that crazy new gizmo they have out there that you can see through one mile down under your feet. Nobody goes there to, to say, I just want to feel big. <laughs> so why do they go? Because we're not made to feel big. We're made to admire big. You all know it. Some of you have books on your coffee tables because you can't get there. You just go look at it in a book. Rivers and mountains and, you know, these glossy big $40 books that you, you put out there. Why do you do that? What, what are that? What's that about? It's about substitute worship. Not a sin. Just you would like to be at the river, at the mountain, at the canyon, and you can't get there, so you're going to look at the book. We, we are made to delight in God. And Lewis says, in calling us to praise the canyon, he's not adding on some little rule. He's saying, bring your joy to consummation. Which means that all these statements in the Bible, praise me, praise me, praise me, are really translated... Come to fullest joy in me. Come to complete, consummate delight in me. That's what they're saying. Which means he's not a megalomaniac. He's after your infinite good. God is stuck with being the most admirable being in the universe. He can only love you well by having you know that. If he tries to do some kind of mock humility and direct you say to me that's stupid that would be really wicked he he's he's if if he's going to direct you to that glory and beauty and magnificence that will satisfy you and why you're made he must direct you to himself this is what love is love seeks the greatest joy of the beloved, and God is the greatest joy in the universe. So he has to be calling people to himself if he would love them. Nobody can copy him in this. Nobody else 
may love this way. I love you by telling you to look to Him. And He loves you by telling you to look to Him. If He were to tell you to look to me, or I were to tell you to look to me, He and I wouldn't be loving. We would be cruel. So, that's my answer. And that's Lewis's answer. Now let's get it from the Bible. Here's the text. And I'm sorry it's not from Psalm 16. I've changed my mind. <laughs> Psalm 16 has those two verses at the end. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There it is. But I'm going to go to Philippians 1 and just I'll quote it for you so you can just listen. It is my eager expectation and hope. This is chapter 1, verse 20 of Philippians. It is my eager expectation and hope that now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now logic in the way propositions fit together in the Bible is absolutely crucial. So get this one. First statement. My passion is to magnify Christ like a telescope. To magnify Christ with the way I die. I'm just going to leave off the living half and just do the die half. Is that I might so die as to make Him look great. Is that your goal? One of my goals I want to die in a way that makes him look majestic, supremely valuable, glorious, worthy. And then he adds, for to die is gain. Now, if I were teaching a class, I'd just stop here and give you a test. Finish the logic for me. Work that out. Work that out. This is Boston. You're supposed to be smart. <laughs> I read the statistics in the history of the church. So how do you work it out? My, my passion is that Christ will be magnified in the way I die in my death for, then he explains, and underpins to die's gain. And the gain piece is explained two verses later in verse 23 where he says, I would rather depart, die, and be with Christ, for that is far better. So the gain here is gaining more of Christ. So now let's put it together. My passion is to magnify Christ in dying, for when I die, I will get more of Christ, and that will be gain. Which means... Christ is made to look really good if I get a lot of gain in Him. Christ is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. You will make Christ look magnificent on the day you die when you look at your family that you're leaving, you look at your house that you're leaving, you look at the planned retirement that you will not have, that you're leaving. You look at the, the grandbabies 
that you will not see grow up and you look at Christ waiting and you say, Gain! That will make him look better than family, better than house, better than retirement, and if you don't, he won't. Which means your quest for satisfaction in him is the means by which he will be glorified in you. Now, there's the biblical warrant for saying God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him, whether I live or whether I die. The major quest of the Christian life is, can I find satisfaction in him at every point? Which leads me to a stunning application that absolutely blew me away in 1968. And the stunning application of that truth is, well, if that's right, if God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him, then you're saying I should devote all my energy and all my time in every circumstance to being as happy as I can be in God. And I'm saying, yes. I grew up um, hearing my dad say, absolutely rightly, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, Johnny, do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10.31. And I knew that. I wanted that. But inside, I'm saying, I want to be happy. Can I be happy? Is it okay to want to be happy? I don't think you cannot want to be happy any more than you could not get hungry unless you're sick. So, Bible, everything you do, make God look glorious in it. Piper's heart, I want to be happy. And now, they're coming together when I'm about 23 years old. They're coming together. That not only may I in some kind of inadvertent result, be happy, I must pursue happiness. Because God is glorified that way. If I am indifferent to Him emotionally, He's going to look cheap in my life. And I don't want Him to look cheap. I want Him to look expensive. He's rich. He's glorious. He's great. So, what we should do for the remainder of our minutes, I think, is spell out biblically this implication. Because this is so shocking to people. I don't know if, if you stumbled like I stumbled. Like, you mean, you mean joy or happiness or pleasure is not optional. It's really required. I mean... That has a double whammy. It's utterly liberating and utterly devastating. 
it's liberating because you mean I can, it's okay. It's okay to want to be happy. It's okay to pursue joy with all my might. And then it's devastating because we're talking God, God as the source and object of that joy. And none of us feels that way about God until we are born again. And a miracle happens in here. And all of our love affair with the internet and our family and our food and our work, all of that just switches places. And God becomes our supreme treasure. That's what the new birth is. When the Holy Spirit turns your world upside down and your affections are now fixed on your creator and not his creation. So let me spell out for you biblical reasons why this shocking statement is true that you should all day, every day, in everything you do, pursue the maximization of your joy in God. Number one, and I'll do as many of these as I have time for. Looks to me that I'm supposed to be done in 10 or 15 minutes. So here we go. We got, I got seven or eight, and we may get through four. I will see. Number one, the Bible commands you to be happy. It's not, not optional. I'll just let you finish the text for me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. That was a good word. Joyful. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the lands. Serve the Lord with. There it is. Serve the Lord with gladness. God does not like begrudging, duty-laden service. Here's a New Testament form of it. Uh, the Lord loves a blank giver. Really, how does he feel about the others? This is not a small thing to me. This is a devastating thing. When I get up in the morning and I hear a statement like, The Lord loves a cheerful pastor. A cheerful giver, a cheerful counselor, a cheerful preacher, a cheerful husband, a cheerful father. I'm devastated. I'm helpless. I'm, I realize Christianity is not a do-good religion. It's not like a list of rules. Like, okay, I got my list. I'm going to go through them today. And one of the, the first one is, be happy. I'm not feeling happy. I wake up sad every day. I got to go to the Bible. I got to go to my knees. I got to preach the gospel to me. I've got to plead with the Lord. Open the eyes of my heart that I may see wonderful things out of your word because I'm low this morning. Every morning I'm wired that way. I got to get saved every day. <laughs> so we're commanded. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4, 4 and many, many others. So argument number one. We're commanded to pursue joy, not to be indifferent to this. Number two, we are threatened with terrible things if we will not be happy. Listen to this frightening word from Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because, this is God talking to his rebellious people. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy... And a, a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies. 
whom the Lord will send against you. The Lord threatens terrible things. If you will not be happy in me, if you insist on finding your chief happiness elsewhere, you will pay. That's what sin is. That's what judgment is. It is so right. And our own consciences are going to confirm God's judgment on us for our finding our chief joy in something other than God. Number three, the nature of faith shows us that the pursuit of joy is mandated. The nature of faith. So here's one verse. I got three written here. I'll just give you one. John 6.35 goes like this. This is Jesus talking. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now notice the two halves of the verse. Come, never hunger. Believe, never thirst. So you lay them on top of each other in order to understand what believe means. Because that's what we're trying to define. What does believing in Jesus mean? We throw it around, we Christians, all the time. We throw around, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. What? What? What do you mean? And Jesus says, it is, and he's talking about your soul here, not your body. It is a coming. It's a coming to him to have your soul hunger satisfied. That's what believing is. It's not a believing of a fact. Merely. It's a coming. I come to you. I'm, I'm desperate. I'm needy. I'm longing. I want to be happy. I want to get rid of my guilt. I just hate the way life has gone. I don't like the prospect of an eternity of a, of a bad conscience. I pray, oh God, help me. That's coming. You have bread. You have water. Satisfy me. Oh, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? That's Isaiah 55. This is the way God talks to the world. Come. So the very nature of saving faith is embracing Jesus as the all-satisfying treasure of your life. That's what faith is. Number four, the nature of evil teaches us that we must pursue our satisfaction in God all the time. What is evil? I wonder what your definition would be. What, give me a, a definition of evil, and then I'll got it in your head. I'll tell you what the definition is in, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. You got it? Okay. So here's Jeremiah's definition. It goes like this. This is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens. This is God talking. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two great evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they have hewn out for themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what's evil? Evil is being presented with a a fountain. 
A fountain that if you drank from it would give you life forever and satisfy you with a river of delights. That's presented to you. And you smell it. And you say, nope, not interested. And you turn to the dirt and you start scraping and scraping to make a cistern. I've got to have water. My soul is thirsty. I'm a human being. I'm not a porpoise. I'm going to dig until I get something that satisfies this longing in here. And you dig and you dig and you suck and you suck on this dirt. That's evil. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I'm just so thankful that God defines evil as turning away from joy. That's evil. You want a definition of evil? Evil is flight from joy. That's what evil is. Of course, evil people think they're doing just the opposite. But that's why the Bible is written to open our eyes. That this scraping away, whether it's a scientific scraping or a sexual lust scraping or a food scraping or a marriage scraping, I've just got to satisfy my soul. And it's all dry because there is a fountain of living water and it's called God. That's number four. Number five. What is conversion? Conversion from not being a Christian to being a Christian, not following Jesus to following Jesus. I'm going to give you one picture of it from Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It's one of these little teeny-weeny parables that Jesus gives. It goes like this. The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, which is a decisive word, from his joy, in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has to buy that field. End of parable. What's the meaning of that parable? It means that the kingdom of God, that is the, the saving rule or reign of God in your life, Provided for sinners by Jesus Christ is like a treasure. And it is discovered to be, when the eyes of our hearts open, it is discovered to be so valuable, it's worth more than everything in the world. Which leads us to argument number six, is it? Whatever. Um, people say to me, they have for years anyway, you're, you're, you're calling people to pursue their joy all the time in God doesn't fit with Jesus' teaching about self-denial. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is an instrument of execution, and follow me. There. So much for your sermon. And my response to that is always, just read the rest of the verse. 
Just read the rest of the verse. You're stopping halfway through. And the rest of the verse says, because he who would save his life will lose it. But he who will lose his life will save it. What's the argument? This is an argument. It's an argument on the basis of your desire to save your life. Jesus has zero desire for you to avoid that premise. You want to save your life. So do I. So lose it. Now this is coming real close to where we're going this evening. And here's where I I said I would tell you the obstacle that I'll try to remove tonight because now I've created it. Here's the obstacle I've created. At least it was an obstacle to me, and I don't know whether it will be for you or not. So at this point in your thinking, and you're laying out all these scriptures, it sounds like you're creating a, a whole church full of selfish people. I mean, they, they're pursuing their joy all the time. Their joy. Come on, make me happy, make me happy. Everywhere I go, I'm going to step on you. Squash, but I'm happy. I'm going to use you to do what John Piper said I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to pursue my happiness. My happiness. You get out of my way. Because I'm on the way to joy. And if you're in the way, squash. Why is it? Why is it that my summoning people to pursue their joy, their joy in God, all the time, doesn't produce unbelievably self-preoccupied people. Instead of loving people. So the obstacle for tonight is the only faith I would even remotely consider is one that produces loving people. And you don't. You just created selfish people. Self-preoccupied people. People after their own joy only, period. And here's my thesis for tonight. Not only is that wrong, it is totally wrong. Meaning, the only people who can love others are those who pursue their joy in God. Period. That's weird. I know, over the top, you can't be saying that. Not in Boston, anyway. You can't, you can't just say wild and crazy things like the only people who can love others are those who are pursuing their joy in God all the time. Well, that's my thesis for later tonight. Let me, let me close like this. Um, let's go back to where we began at the beginning. I'm arguing that God is not a megalomaniac in pursuing our praise. God is glorified when we delight in Him, enjoy Him, are satisfied in Him, so that His glory and my joy come to consummation in the same act. Call it worship. So here's my closing illustration. We are, we are against, I'm against a duty-driven religion that says God is glorified if I do the right things. Do the right things. So I've been married 40 years. 
as of December 21 last year. Suppose I did this one time on the 40th anniversary of the day we met. So I've really done this. It's on video. I haven't put it on YouTube, <laughs> but it, I have it at home. My 12-year-old daughter at the time, I said, okay, you're going to video this. Mommy and I are going to walk through this because I've told this story so many times. I want people to know I really did it. So this is make-believe, though, the one I'm going to tell you. So it's 40th. It's really cold outside. I've got 40 roses behind my back. I, I don't know if you can hold 40 roses. Cost $120. And you ring the doorbell. I never ring my doorbell, so Noelle's going to be surprised. And uh, she comes to the door, opens the door, looks at me funny, like, why'd you ring the doorbell? This is your house. And I, I pull the roses out and I say, happy anniversary, Noel." And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. Now, I've told that story a hundred times, and people, all, people always laugh. Why did you laugh at duty? This is serious. Shame on you. <laughs> you should laugh, but you need to know why. It'll change your life if you know why. Okay, to know why, we're going to rerun the, rewind the video. Do it one more time, then we'll be done. So, ding-dong, comes to the door. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? Because I can't help myself. In fact, i got a babysitter for Talitha, and you and I are going out tonight because there's nobody I'd rather spend the night with than you. Now, not in a thousand years would Noel ever say, nobody you'd ever want to spend the night with. All you ever think about is yourself. You, you just want to have a good time tonight. You are so selfish. You're thinking about yourself all the time. Nothing you'd rather do than be with me. Now, why, why, would, why would she not say that? And why did you laugh? Again. What's going on here? What, what's at work in your heart? You, something is written on your hearts very deeply here that's producing this appropriate laughter. And I'll tell you what's written there. You know that the highest tribute I can pay to my wife is to tell her that she makes me happy. Nobody else on the planet touches me and causes me to be more delighted, more pleasurable than you. Why doesn't she call me selfish at that moment? Why doesn't she accuse me of being all wrapped up in me? And the reason is really clear. I'm wrapped up in her. And the way I'm experiencing it is that she's making me happy. And that's the way it is with God. If you want to magnify God and glorify God, don't you dare come in this room on Sunday morning and say, it's a duty. This is just what we do at Park Street. We go to church Sunday morning. 
We do the stuff. We do the right thing. We got the list. We got it down. And God is honored. He's not. But if you walk into this room and somebody says, why are you here? And you say, no place else I'd rather be. This is God's house. I intend to meet God here, enjoy God here, magnify God here, delight in God here, encounter God, fellowship with God. God will look good when you talk like that. Just like my wife looked good when I said, there's no, nobody else tonight I'd rather be with. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied. God, I pray, I plead with you that this not just be interesting, but that it be transforming, awakening. Come and do your eye-opening, soul-saving, transforming work. Incline us to see you, know you, enjoy you as our supreme treasure. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.